0: Hello, welcome to the Everyday Injustice podcast, where we highlight the everyday injustice that befalls the criminal justice system. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the last 10 years as Vanguard Court Watch, we have operated court watches in California, San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal, to shine a light on everyday injustice in the court system, and now broadly, we shine a light on injustice in the criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. David Thorne is serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole for allegedly hiring an acquaintance to kill the mother of his son. However, he never hired anyone nor did the acquaintance do the crime. Sometime between the evening hours on March 31st, 1999 and noon on April 1st, 1999, Yvonne Lane, a mother of five, was murdered in her home with one solid and steady slit in her throat. David Thorne was convicted of complicity to aggravated murder and Murder for Hire on January 25, 2000, by a 12-person jury. The police investigating the crime had tunnel vision throughout their investigation, narrowing in on David Thorne from the beginning. The Investigators weren't able to get David to confess, so instead they went after his acquaintance, Joseph Wilkes, who was barely 18 years old in a high school dropout. After a lengthy interrogation during which they told Joseph that David was next door ratting him out, he confessed, utilizing the story that the police had fed him to what the police were telling him had happened. Joe took a plea agreement and David went to trial. Despite the lack of physical evidence of either Joe or David being at the scene and a poor police investigation with very weak circumstantial evidence, an innocent man was convicted we have on our show today david's wife sue thorne welcome to our show
1: thank you for having me
0: so can you explain what happened in the case
1: yeah uh this it's every every part of this case is botched up i mean it's 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 almost comical if it wasn't so serious but david was involved And when he was 23 years old with a girl named Yvonne Lane, and he got her pregnant, but he didn't know. They broke up, and he never knew she had been pregnant until Child Support Enforcement Agency contacted him in 1998 and said they needed some DNA because they were going to go after him for child support which he voluntarily, I mean, he had no problem doing, he, but he thought he had seen her when she would have been eight months pregnant and thought she didn't look pregnant at all, but you gotta do what they tell you to do. So he went in and gave his DNA. But as soon as he saw the child, he knew he was his because he, was, he looked exactly like him, he still does. So he immediately, as soon as he saw him, he started a relationship with the child and with his mother. He started hanging out with both of them and, and her other children, she had five boys, He didn't see her until 1998 when he took the the DNA test. And once he found out he had a child with her, they spent time together because he wanted to be with his child, and she let him take him as often as he wanted. He gave her money even before the court determined he needed to. Before the DNA results even came back, he was giving her money because he knew he was his child and he wanted to take care of him. But then she turned up dead, and because... And this was like they determined he he took the DNA test in April of 1998, and she died in March of 1999. And they said that it was the newly uh, discovered DNA test results and the fact that he had to pay child support of $80 a week that made him want her to die. So he became their only suspect. The first day, the cops came to his house and said, He's our number one suspect. We need to talk to him first day.
0: Wow. And so what happened from there?
1: From there, they made it their mission to irritate David by following him everywhere he went. Um, They did nothing as far as other suspects. Uh, When they interviewed Yvonne's mother, she listed 22 suspects and they interviewed none of them except for David. And she didn't mention David. She said they, always had a pretty good relationship and she didn't think he would hurt Yvonne. But it's still they focused on David. He went in for an interview the he wasn't home the first day when they went to his grandparents' house. So he went in the next day for an interview and as soon as he sat down his grandfather had called and said, I don't want him to be interviewed without an attorney present and so they had to stop the interview. And so they said, Well, people that don't want to be interviewed are usually our first suspects and they just honed in on him. They just wouldn't leave him alone. It had to be him. And they, and if they couldn't find evidence to make it him, they manufactured evidence.
0: So what evidence did they have against him?
1: Well, they said the, the evidence they had against David was Joe. They interviewed three of his friends to try to get somebody to say, I killed Yvonne and David told me to. The first two said, get out of here. We're not doing that. You know, it's not true. and we, And we didn't have anything to do with this. But Joe was needy and emotionally, behaviorally challenged, and he was easily swayed into thinking that David was in the next room writing a statement saying that David did the crime, but he was going to blame Joe. And he said, he's going to hang you for his crime. You need to be a man and stand up for yourself and say the truth. Say David did it. Well, I had nothing to do with this. I don't. I don't know that David had anything to do with this. And he said, well, he's hanging you for it. You better hang him first. So Joe sat and read from a rehearsed script and implicated David to save his own life because they told him they were going to put him in the electric chair and light him up like the 4th of July if they didn't help him, if he didn't help them.
0: Did Joe end up so going he was, to prison?
1: He, they told him they'd give him 30 years and he'd be out in seven. But they gave him thirty years before the possibility of parole. So he thought he was getting a a good deal, even though he should have served zero. He he wasn't making that make sense in his brain. He knew that he was they were going to get him for something some way or another. So he uh, went with the thirty to get out in seven. But they gave him thirty possibility of parole after thirty.
0: So they actually end up wrongfully convicting two people. Yes. One
1: voluntarily, one fighting and kicking and screaming the whole way.
0: So this case goes to trial? Yes. And what happens at the trial?
1: Well, Joe's their star witness. They put him on halfway through, and he sat up there and changed. He changed his story from the first two interviews they did with him in the police department on the 14th and 15th of July. He, He, I don't know, I don't recall through the whole thing. When he got on the stand, it was more of the same He said David paid him to do this. He said $300. He said $200. He said $400. He said $500. He said, I don't know, I don't recall, or I don't remember, 138 times during his testimony.
0: Now, were you at this trial?
1: No, I was not involved in this at all then. I uh, I worked in the town where they lived, so I knew David just kind of, he came into where I worked, and his grandparents came into where I worked. So when I heard he got arrested, I, I went over to their house and I said, what, what is this? And they said, it's not true. He didn't do it. And I said, show me what you have. And I got involved as far as reading paperwork and stuff like that. And I, and I was keeping my eye on the newspaper. And I thought, well, it doesn't sound like they've got anything. I think everything will be OK. But I didn't even know enough about the justice system to know that I could go to court and that I could listen I thought you had to have a reason to be there. You were a witness or whatever. So I didn't go. And his grandmother called me the day they convicted him crying. And she said, he's going to jail. They convicted him. And I almost fell over. I couldn't believe it.
0: Wow. Um, So are you able to talk about his defense attorney and what kind of uh, defense was put on?
1: There was no defense put on. He had Jeffrey hopped who was a known drinker, and he was drunk the entire trial. He, they, they, everybody in the family and David smelled the alcohol on him. His wife drove him to court and waited every day, so he wasn't even driving a car. And the first day he he met the, the Cosiscos, who are David's grandparents, who David lived with. He went out to their house with his co-counsel that he selected and they went out on the porch to discuss whether they would take the case or not and the window was open and they didn't know it so jeffrey said there's money to be had here we'll lose the trial and get the appeals
0: hmm and
1: he didn't view the he didn't view the crime scene photos until he was in court and they were putting them in his face they he didn't view the physical evidence he didn't visit david at jail
0: and he this was a private attorney
1: a yeah they paid him 100,000 dollars
0: They paid him a hundred thousand dollars and he didn't even look at the crime scene photos until the trial
1: payable in full upfront. Once they've signed that check, he didn't talk to him again. He didn't take phone calls.
0: Wow. Um, so obviously he gets convicted and Mm -hmm. he's sentenced to life. Yes.
1: Yes. Without parole.
0: Um, and I'm assuming they didn't seek the death penalty. Yes, they did. Oh, they did. Um, yeah. And what happened with that?
1: She pled for the death penalty. I mean, she really gave it her all. The prosecutor, she really wanted the death penalty. And the, the uh, jury just couldn't agree on the death penalty. And They could give him 25 years of life, 30 years of life, life without parole, or the death penalty. And they chose life without parole.
0: And and where was this again?
1: Canton, Ohio.
0: Canton, Ohio. So that's
1: where the courthouse is. The right. murder was in Alliance.
0: I see. Um, and and so basically, um, the jury doesn't buy into the death penalty on this one. Right. The um, jury,
1: some of them were crying through the deliberation.
0: And and what year was this when he's finally convicted?
1: Two thousand.
0: 2000. So that's 19 years ago. Um, so what's happened since.
1: We went, we went out, well, I got involved and started reading stuff and started talking to people and just being a general pain in the butt. I, if I saw their name in the, um, transcripts, I knocked on the door and I said, so what's your story? I mean, you know, can, can you help me understand? And people were pretty willing to talk to me and, there were witnesses that recanted what they said in court. There was a witness that said Joe sat at a table with him in the cafe court at the Comfort Inn and said he was in town to kill somebody, and he was doing it for some his girlfriend, he said. But they used him as backing up Joe's shaky testimony. And he said, yeah, none of that happened. That didn't happen. And the people David worked with, who verified that he had time to get off work, go to the Comfort Inn, pick Joe up, drive him to where he was living, and come back to work, Uh, So that they could make it where David, because Joe said David picked him up and took him home. They had to make that fit and David only took a half hour lunch and that wasn't enough. So they got him to stretch the time and I talked to him and he said, well, I asked him if they were sure he was guilty and they said yes. So I said, what can I do to help?
0: Wow. Um, So... Evidence has now come out that shows that he wasn't the killer, couldn't have been the killer. Uh, can you talk about sure. that?
1: I can. What it is is it can it shows that uh, Joseph wasn't the killer because nobody ever accused David of being the killer. So we have to kind of prove Joe is not guilty in order to get if David was never, you know, if Joe didn't do it, David couldn't have hired him. I see. So, so we started looking at Joe's stuff, and he testified that at trial that they were sitting beside each other on the end of her couch. He said he met her once, and then he said two times and three times. But he said that testimony, he met her once, and he went in to see how she was doing for some random reason and went and sat right up against her on her couch with her against the arm of the couch, which who would do that? Who would let him do that? And he said he just, they were talking and he reached around her with his right arm all the way around her neck, all the way around her face, all the way around to the left side of her neck and jabbed a knife in her neck and cut her throat. That's physically impossible to do. And if he had done that, her left carotid artery was severed. He'd have been, there would have been blood blown all over him and he had no blood on him. And he said, then she jumped up from the couch, ran across the room. Stopped in front of the sliding glass doors, holding her neck the whole time so no blood came out. That's why he wasn't bloody, he said, because she had her hands across the 8-inch by 4-inch hole in her neck. Right. And said she ran with that hole in her neck all the way across to the sliding glass doors, let go, and blood burst all over the doors. Then she turned around with an 8-inch by 4-inch hole in her neck and said, why did you do it? She's not talking. Her trachea is severed. And then he said, because David wanted me to. And then she she walked back in and fell at his feet. And then he said he got up and he tripped over a, a dresser, which was a chest of drawers. He called it a TV stand, and knocked the TV over on her. And. Brent Turvey, the forensic scientist we hired, proved that was wrong. He said that there's no way you could bump into that chest of drawers and make it fall the way it was leaning. He It was pulled forward with somebody standing in front of it and holding it with their hands and pulling it towards them. They put a baby walker underneath of it to prop it up so it didn't fall and smash her. And then they picked up her TV set, a 13-inch TV set, and laid it on her back. There's no impact wound from the TV falling off a bat and hitting her. They had to have picked it up and laid it on her. So the scene was staged. Joe's not going to stage a scene. Joe's lucky to get in the door.
0: Wow. So where does this case stand in terms of the legal system?
1: As far as the legal system's concerned, he's exhausted all of his appeals. He has no remedy in the courts. The only thing we can do is find new evidence. So new evidence would be DNA. But they said that there's a law now that if you're in Ohio and you've never had your DNA in your case tested, that you can petition the court and have it tested or petition the governor's office. And but they said since he was never considered to be at the crime scene, he doesn't qualify. Since Joe confessed, he doesn't qualify. So we've got untested DNA And Brent Turvey stated in his findings that the killer was standing behind her at the sliding glass door, supporting her under her arms. And he slashed her throat, turned her to her right, and turned her around facing the living room and walked her into the living room while he assisted her from behind. So that killer is all over that victim.
0: Right. So there should be DNA there. There
1: should be touch DNA. Yeah. Yeah. All up and down her back, they took their, their knife and wiped it off on the pillow on her couch. It looks like they folded the pillow over the knife, which would be in their hand, and pulled the knife out through the bottom of the slit of the pillow, which means their hand and their knife was up in, inside that pillow. And traditionally, at least according to what I've looked into, when you cut somebody like that, your hand gets slippery on their blood, and you tend to cut yourself. So their blood may be on that knife as well.
0: And did they she ever find the back. knife?
1: No. There is a knife that they found that came from her set. They found five blocks away the day after the murder with a thumbprint on the hilt of the knife. And they took that into uh custody. But they they match they tried to match it against David and against Joe and it didn't match either of them. But they they the knife they call the murder weapon is a pocket knife that Joe they said Joe bought. The problem with that is when joe's supposed to be buying all this stuff he's he they said david took it they gotta tie david into every minute of his day for some reason they said david took him to the mall and told after work and told him to go in and buy a knife and a pair of gloves so he said he did and then once they found out nobody bought a knife and a pair of gloves that day together they had to make it that he bought one in the afternoon and one in the evening. And so when he checked, they said he, he spent the night in the motel and there's a receipt showing this. He checked into the motel at 146 and all the way across to the other end of the mall, somebody's buying the only pair of gloves sold at Kmart that day at 147, one minute later. And they said that was Joe.
0: And Joe has said The way since... they got around
1: that is the hotel clerk testified that when you check in, the clock is 15 to 20 minutes off. When you check out, it's five to ten minutes off, and that's their computer clock, you know, their universal clock in your computer. Hmm. It's never wrong.
0: Right. So Joe has now recanted his confession, is that correct?
1: He recanted in 2000. I talked to him on New Year's Eve, and uh, they got convicted, well, David got convicted in January of 2000, and Joe... I reached out to him and he finally got a hold of me on New Year's Eve of 2000.
0: And what does he claim now?
1: He said, David had nothing to do with any of this. He said, I didn't kill her. I just said what I said to save my life. But they convinced me that David was in the next room because they gave me a hand printed sworn statement with his name on the bottom that says that he's involved in this crime, but he's willing to sell me out in order to walk free. And he said, so I, I sold him out first, but he said, I didn't know it wasn't true. I, they're the police, you believe them.
0: So this is kind of a classic case of, uh, of, of a false confession that's coerced by the police and it's used almost as an informant, uh, testimony where the one witness is trying to get himself off the hook by implicating the other witness.
1: Right. Only in this case, neither of them did it. Right. I really don't believe, I mean, I can't, I wouldn't put my, stake my life on Joe because he changed his story so many times. They found a pair of pants out in the woods that they took into custody and said that they were the pants that he wore that night and he agreed they were. Why'd you throw them in the woods? But they tested them and they had no blood on them. They found a knife in a gutter and this is months, you know, in July after the March murder. And he said that was his knife, he told them. And he said, they drove him to that gutter and they said, this is where we're going to find your knife. And he said, okay, whatever. So, but they tested that and there was no blood on it. But the criminalist testified in David's case that there was a positive presumptive test for blood on the handle of that knife and down inside the handle. And they said, well, you know, if you hear that and you're a juror, you're going to go, oh, there's blood on the knife. But they they continued questioning, and she said Pos- it was positive presumptive for a protein-based substance, but it was not found to be human blood. So after she dropped that nugget where they think it's human blood, then she said it wasn't when they pressed her on it.
0: It's also not going to be trace amounts of blood with a, a, a neck wound.
1: Oh, No. And not only that, he had to be – the killer was so covered in blood, once they got the, – the blood evidence that is it's the victim where she could not have gotten to, they stood against her couch and wiped the, the knife, like I said, on the pillow. And they're standing against her couch, so the skirt of the couch has two legs on it, where the bloody legs of the killer stood, leaned against the couch, and wiped the knife off. So they're covered in blood. And Joe has no blood on him. He walked 3.9 miles to the motel, according to him. And I put, he had a white jacket on and black um, athletic pants. And I put my child on the street in a white shirt and black pants, same time of the night, same day of the year. And I said, start walking. And I, I started driving towards him. I stopped every 10 or 20 feet and took his picture. Anybody would have seen that boy covered in blood. If Joe had blood on him, they would have seen it clearly and they would have called the police.
0: And, and that makes much more sense. So mm-hmm. um, has the Innocence Project taken this case up?
1: They have refused me three times.
0: Have they given you a reason why?
1: They said the crime scene is too contaminated because every policeman on the department came and spent time on the scene. Uh, the chief of police brought a date with him the neighbors were in there everybody and their uncle was in that scene so they said it's too contaminated well with modern dna that that's not possible but they also said that uh dna would help joe but it wouldn't help david because nobody ever accused david of being there and if they take david's case they can't test it for david because he wasn't there
0: That seems easy to untangle. You simply investigate Joe, and if Joe turns out not to be the killer, then David's probably not the killer either.
1: Right. And not only that, but if if you test her clothes, you're going to find a deposit from somebody. Yeah. I mean, you know, so it may not be David, it may not be Joe, but it's going to say who was there.
0: And if you find you know, DNA from a police officer or his date, it's easy enough to eliminate those as possibilities.
1: Well the police went to a psychic after they started this investigation and they couldn't get David for it. They found out he had an ironclad alibi. They decided to go see a psychic. And the psychic said, it isn't David, you can just you're wasting your time. And then it isn't Joe. But she said, What's with all these police that she's seeing? And so what she said was not important to me. It's what they said to her. And they said, every policeman in this department is sleeping with that girl except the two of us. Which means including the two of us. Whoa. So they're all sleeping with this girl. When, when the call came in that Yvonne's mother found the body, there was a policeman that responded and found another policeman already sitting there that did not respond. He was just happened to be there in the neighborhood Very and interesting. rumor has it, according to this psychic interview, he was one of the people she was sleeping with. So a married police
0: officer. So where does this case go at this point? It's almost 20 years old.
1: At this point, we're going to have to have something like new evidence or exoneration or clemency or because, 20 years later, I mean, a lot of these people are dead. And I wouldn't bet my house that they kept good track of the DNA evidence because they have no intention of ever letting him go. I have viewed the evidence. I know it existed, and I have an investigative reporter that views the evidence even later than I did. So I know it existed unless they've done something with it since. But we need the evidence tested for DNA. I think that is the crucial number one thing to do. And have you... Because I think the answer in the DNA.
0: Yeah. Have you attempted uh, to go the legal route to force the DNA to be tested?
1: He's had like 10 attorneys since this started, and I've asked every one of them to petition the DNA testing, and every one of them said no, they won't do it.
0: And why not?
1: They Well, the latest attorney said, well, what if it turns out to be Joe's? I said, then we'll know.
0: Exactly. At least you'll know and you can stop worrying about this.
1: Yeah. If if Joe's DNA is there, it doesn't mean David has anything to do with it, but at least we'll know it's Joe's. Yeah. But we need to test it. I mean, David and her got along so well. I mean, they... She, she was trying, her mother said she was trying to get back with David all right. and the, they, they said in court that she, when Joe said she ran back towards him and fell down at the couch, she only has blood on the bottom of one foot. She only walked in the blood with one foot. The other one has blood that dripped off of the killer and tiny droplets on the bottom of her foot, but she didn't make purchase with that foot. So unless she took one giant step and slid all the way to the couch in another room, she couldn't have gotten back there on her own steam.
0: Well, thank you very much for being on our show. You're welcome. This has been uh, Sue Thorne, the wife of David Thorne, who has been imprisoned for the last nearly 20 years um, in a murder-for-hire case in which he um, is not believed to be the hirer and in which uh, the person accused of doing the actual killing, uh, it's questionable that he did it either. Very strange case, um, but they're running out of options here. They need to get the DNA testing in order to possibly show that uh, Joe uh, was not the actual killer. You're listening to everyday injustice podcast and this is a big injustice in our system a man likely innocent is in prison and he has limited opportunities to get out i'm your host david Greenwald. join us again next time for another episode